0: Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute of medical advice of physicians. You may review the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at bonehealthandosteoporosis.org.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Bone Talk. I'm Claire Gill, CEO of the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation. Joining me today is Dr. Orlando Ortiz. Dr. Ortiz is the chairman of the Department of Radiology at New York City Health and Hospital's Jacoby, in the Bronx, and is also a professor of radiology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He is an active leader in the radiology community, and among his many leadership roles, he has served as past president of the American Society of Spine Radiology and served on the Patient Safety Task Force for the North American Spine Society. Dr. Ortiz is frequently invited faculty member at major national and international scientific meetings. He's also had numerous scientific presentations to his credit and lectures extensively on diagnostic and therapeutic spine procedures. Dr. Ortiz is widely published, including in key uh, constructional pieces for vertebral augmentation and other spine interventions, as well as a textbook on image-guided percutaneous spine biopsy. He has and continues to direct and teach physicians' courses on image-guided spine interventions. In his clinical spine practice, he continues to see patients and perform image-guided spine interventions as part of their care. Dr. Ortiz, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much, Claire, and thank you for inviting me to share this important information with
1: everyone. Great, so let's get started. So we know that if not prevented or left untreated, osteoporosis can progress with no pain or symptoms until someone breaks a bone. And we know that people with osteoporosis most often break bones in the hip, spine, and wrist. So can you please tell us a bit about what are vertebral compression fractures and how can they affect a person's spine and also their overall health?
2: Certainly. Certainly. The human spine is made up of neatly organized stacked bony blocks or vertebra. These bony blocks help the spine provide its basic functions, which are support, mobility, and stability. In the setting of osteoporosis, one or more of these bony blocks is susceptible or at risk for collapsing. This can occur as a result of even simple movements such as bending over to tie your shoes, or sneezing, or maybe tripping and falling. In other words, the bone breaks, and this often occurs in the mid and lower back, as far down as the tailbone. This type of collapse interferes with the normal function of the spine, and it could lead to severe pain and eventually to height loss in the collapsing bone as well as spinal deformity. The normal functions of the spine are disrupted or compromised by the fracture. Patients will experience back pain with standing or basic movements such as turning or bending over. Patients may also experience poor balance because the spine is now deformed and their posture has changed other body organs such as the lungs or stomach may not work as well because they get squeezed and the surrounding muscles are working overtime to try to compensate and stabilize the body. Over time, patients with vertebral compression fractures notice difficulty with breathing, reduced activity and mobility, sleep disorders, reduced appetite, and depression that is associated with becoming bedbound and losing their independence
1: it's really incredible we often forget how really important the skeletal health is and how everything is so interconnected so that when we do experience you know fractures in the spine as you just said it can impact so many areas of life and the vertebral compression fractures are actually quite common isn't that right dr ortiz
2: oh yes they make up the most common types of fractures in people with osteoporosis, they affect about 750,000 people annually in this country, including about one fourth of postmenopausal women. The risk of vertebral compression fractures also increases with age. For example, 40% of women over the age of 80 have at least one osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture. So, indeed, we are dealing with a common condition.
1: Yeah. And yet so many people don't know about it, right? I mean, as you said, I think when there's a compression fracture that does cause pain, then you know it people seek some relief for that pain, even though if they sometimes just think, oh, my back just hurts. You know, I, I hear from a lot of older people where they just, oh, my back hurts. You know, I just constantly have this back pain and re- advising them that they probably should get that checked out. But, you know, we don't even think either about the the loss of height. So many times people think, oh, well, that's just a normal part of aging. You kind of shrink when you get older. And although I know, you know, there is a little bit of shrinkage People just don't understand that they probably had these vertebral fractures that have helped them, you know, lose that height. My mom, I was, she was 90 when she passed, but she finally let me take her to one of our specialists to kind of look at her vertebral fractures and she'd already had a hip fracture and she did not have any kyphosis. And so for those of you listening, kyphosis is when there's that curvature of the spine, sort of like the, the older people look a little hunched over, that's called kyphosis And my mom didn't have that. She had fantastic posture. But when we had her height measured and the clinician, you know, he said, Mom, how tall do you think you are? And she said, well, I'm sure I've lost a little bit, but I'm 5'7". And then she was actually 5'4". That was one of those shocking moments. Do you find that as a big surprise for your patients too, Dr. Ortiz?
2: Oh, yes, yes. Many of my patients they record their height for many years and they say oh i'm you know like your mom five seven or five six etc and when we measure them and they're much shorter they're they're quite surprised the other thing that they notice is that they have to readjust their clothing their outfits their hems etc because of these different uh changes related to posture and overall body morphology so Yes, I would. I would agree with you with respect to that observation. It again, you know, we're dealing with osteoporosis overall as a silent or or quiet disease with these presentations with pain sometimes that's masquerading to our patients as degenerative pain or pain that they have here and there and that they hope and think will get better and sometimes it does, but in the end. The fracture deformity is there, the collapsed vertebra or bone block yeah. is there, and the result in change in height, change in spinal alignment, and change in sp- and posture becomes quite yeah. evident.
1: Yeah, and like you said, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, and it leads to so many other potential issues. So let's talk a little bit about what happens if you know vertebral compression fracture are left untreated, and then what are some of the various treatment options for compression fractures? Well, if you leave these fractures untreated, as we just
2: said, it can cause your spine to shorten and curve forward. And this leads to what you referred to before as a hunched or stooped back, uh, which healthcare providers refer to as kyphosis. This in turn has a negative effect on a person's activities of daily living, such as walking, cleaning, bathing, or working on your garden. The pain that occurs with the initial fracture, however, may not go away and may become chronic. And if you have one osteoporotic vertebral compression fracture already and you have osteoporosis, you are at five times the risk of having a second fracture. And studies have shown that the risk for death goes up to more than 50% after a year of an untreated vertebral fracture. Each of these broken or collapsed bones weaken the spine and put additional stress on nearby bones that are also weakened because the way weight is distributed along the spinal axis and along the deformed spine. And so because of that, there's an increased risk of sustaining additional vertebral fractures over time.
1: Yeah, you know, again, I think that that important part about fracture begets fracture, that you really have to do something about that initial fracture or your chances of having another one have increased so greatly. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, the procedures surgically that are available to people who have a spine fracture i have to say my mom as i mentioned my mom had multiple vertebral compression fractures and even after her last one i couldn't find anyone within our health system who would do a follow-up with her about a vertebral compression fracture you know so while she was diagnosed with osteoporosis I think the option of surgery was never even discussed. so let's let's talk about that a little bit about particularly for new fractures. I mean, obviously, there is a a right candidate and a wrong candidate for any surgery. So let's talk through that a little bit. Let's talk about the the procedures first. What's available to people to treat fractures? Well, well, traditionally, the first attempt at
2: dealing with painful osteoporotic vertebral compression fractures, was with uh, non-surgical or medical management. And we're talking about bed rest, pain medications, physical therapy, and back bracing. In some cases, these treatments help, but clinical studies show that their overall effectiveness is limited as compared to addressing the primary problems of the fracture and osteoporosis. So with respect to vertebral compression fractures it has been shown that surgical management with what are called vertebral augmentation procedures such as balloon kyphoplasty these are special interventional procedures that can be used to repair the fracture, restabilize the spine and reduce spinal deformity. These uh, procedures help to provide pain relief and restore mobility, both of which lead to an improved quality of life. So now, on top of medical management, we have a surgical intervention that is quite useful and quite effective. And this is great news.
1: It is, for especially for people who are in acute pain, right? And, and it's even where, again, just having them, you know, Provided with pain medication isn't going to reduce what the the suffering that they're experiencing because the fracture itself is so is so acute.
2: Those pain medications have side effects right. as well. They affect the gastrointestinal system, they make people groggy, more susceptible sometimes to falls, especially if taken, you know, near near the, the bedtime hours. So
1: those medications have risk also. Right. Everything, like everything obviously has has a potential risk and, and a side effect that needs to be determined. So what makes someone a good candidate for kyphoplasty or another one of their procedures? First, you have to
2: have severe back pain that is directly related to the vertebral compression fracture. The pain is located focally in the part of the back that's affected, either the mid-back or the lower back, or in some cases, the tailbone. The pain may radiate around to the front of your chest or to the abdomen. And to determine whether or not that fracture is responsible for your pain, you need to be evaluated. You need to to see a physician and get examined and see if the level where the fracture is located corresponds and correlates with where you're having your pain. Now, by the time a patient comes to our attention, they've already been treated with medical management. We talked about the pain medications and bed rest, etc. And many of these patients, when they come to see me, are in significant mm-hmm. pain. And I do have to emphasize one thing here, one important point, that age is not a determinant for performing the procedure. Now, what can prevent or delay the procedure? What might make you not a candidate immediately for the procedure? Number one, if you have an infection, that has to be taken care of and you have to be treated and cleared. Number two, you're on blood thinners and many of our patients have other reasons for taking blood thinners, such as cardiac conditions or other neurologic Mm -hmm. conditions. And they're on these powerful blood thinners. And we have to come up with strategies to deal with that with the doctors who put them on those blood thinners. And lastly, if there is back pain, but it's not related to what ultimately turns out to be a more chronic or healed fracture that's been there for Mm -hmm. a while, and the pain is due to something else, there obviously wouldn't be a candidate for having the surgical procedure.
1: And you said by the time patients get to you, you know, they've undergone some other kind of medical treatment for for the pain first. So how would someone get referred to you, Dr. Ortiz, and by who? Like, is it their primary care physician that says, oh, this is something going on, and I think you need to see a specialist? How do you normally get referred, you know, patients to your practice to be able to evaluate further?
2: There are about Three or four major routes that patients get to see me. Number one, by their primary care physician. Number two, they're in so much pain and distress, they can't move. Uh, they've been brought to the emergency room, so the emergency room doctors will call us. Number three, they've been admitted to the hospital. And they're having pain, and it's discovered while they're in the hospital that the pain is related to a vertebral compression fracture. Then I get called in for consultation. And very importantly, number four, many of my patients are self referred because other patients who have had the procedure and it has helped them say, Oh, I know this doctor who treats that same problem that I had. You should see them. And then
1: the patient will call us and we try to help them out yeah well it's great that there's you know that number of ways for patients to do it and I think it is really important for our listeners to know that right that there might be a time where you'll have to advocate for yourself and seek out some additional expertise to find out if there is something else that can be done to help with your acute pain So I love Dr. Ortiz that you talk about the fact that, it's really important to consider the surgical options when they're relevant to a patient, but that there also has to be some follow-up to address the osteoporosis, which as we talk about is most likely the underlying cause. So what should patients ask though? I mean, you're very much tapped into that and saying, well, yes, I'm going to help you treat this acute situation, but then I also want you to know that you need to be followed up with someone about your osteoporosis. What do you recommend for patients who maybe are speaking with, you know, a a surgical radiologist, but they're not being told to follow up and do osteoporosis? Are there questions they should ask their surgeon that would help lead to the follow-on care that that you prescribe? Oh, certainly.
2: First, we have to remember that osteoporosis is a systemic condition, that has to be monitored and managed over time. And I explained this to my patient. I said, we've treated your your fracture, but this procedure doesn't treat your osteoporosis. We have to work on that next. And I really want them, my patients to, to feel comfortable, whether it's me or another surgeon or operator, they need to feel comfortable asking them what to do next after the fracture is treated. And questions you can ask are as follows. You can say, gee, doctor, do do you think I need a bone density test? Should I start certain medical treatments? Are there certain exercises that I can do? Should I be taking calcium and vitamin D supplements? Uh, These sorts of questions, if your surgeon is used to Dealing and handling the referrals with this may be addressed directly by the surgeon, or they may say, I think it best that we communicate with your primary care doctor, we coordinate your care, and we get you in the hands of the right specialist to deal with the specific components that are unique to your situation. And once that communication takes place, you're going to be in great shape because. When the patient and the doctors are all talking to each other, your care becomes the central point of that, and you benefit the most. So you do have the opportunity, and you are empowered to ask and to follow up, because the goal in your care is to prevent future osteoporotic fractures, and this can be accomplished by good communication, by good follow-up care and appropriate
1: testing and medical management. Yep. That handoff is so important. And even if you said, even if the the clinician doesn't do the handoff, the patient needs to inform or their care partner, their caregiver needs to inform all of their their doctors and the healthcare providers that this fracture has happened and what the, the treatment or the outcomes were. You know, I find it particularly difficult sometimes with even older patients who don't want to share (laughs) with their primary care, all the things that have happened. My mom would say things like, oh, I tripped. I just, when, you know, her primary care would be like, so how have you been? She goes, oh, well, I tripped a little bit, you know, in the house, but I'm all fine now. And, you know, thankfully my sister or I would be with her and we'd say, mom, you fell down the stairs and you put a, hole in the wall with your head. This this isn't a little, oh I just tripped, but you know, it was that minimizing. And then you can't your healthcare providers cannot give you the proper care or attention that you need if you leave those things out, right? So what's so important that the doctors talk to each other and that the patient be willing to talk honestly with their clinician about what's happened to them. If you've had a, a kyphoplasty procedure all of your doctors need to know that, right? And should be informed that that's happened. So we really need to work on, on that kind of communication. But let's go back to communicating with the patient, again, Dr. Ortiz, and talk a little bit, if you can, please, about some of the the benefits and the risks of the kyphoplasty. Obviously, ending pain is terrific. But as we said, everything has a risk and a benefit and needs to be evaluated. So what are some of the risks and benefits with the the vertebral compression fracture treatments?
2: Okay, well, let's first talk about the benefit because
1: this is why you're being
2: referred for this type of procedure or seeking it out yourself in terms of vertebral augmentation procedures or balloon kyphoplasty. The major benefit is pain relief. And this can occur as early as within 24 to 48 hours of the procedure or in the ensuing days. And that relief is very substantive and patients feel great. The success and efficacy of the procedure with respect to pain relief is very high. The other benefit is deformity correction. You're less hunched over, you're regaining your your center of gravity, you're more balanced. And this is really good because it certainly prevents the likelihood of experiencing falls because when you're more hunched over and your center of gravity is altered, you're predisposed to more frequent falls. Patients also have expressed a high degree of satisfaction with the procedure. They tell me that they feel much better and they are grateful because they're able to resume their lives the way they were doing it prior to experiencing the fracture. Now, in terms of risk, and as we said earlier, there's no medical surgical procedure that does not carry some risk. Fortunately, the risks that are associated with balloon kyphoplasty are low. In general, they include bleeding, infection, and incorrect instrument and cement placement. Now, how do we mitigate these risks? Well, unnecessary bleeding is prevented by an appropriate pre-procedure workup. We order certain blood tests. We proactively manage blood thinners with the referring doctors and with the patient to make sure we hold them for the right amount of time. This is very carefully managed in extreme detail. How do we deal with infection? Well, we prevent it by performing the procedure with strict aseptic technique in a sterile environment. Additionally, you might receive prophylactic antibiotic therapy shortly before your procedure at the discretion of your surgeon. How do we maintain the safety of instrument placement and implant placement, the cement that's used for the procedure? We use imaging guidance, and this helps us to carefully monitor everything that we're doing during your procedure in order to make it as safe as possible to make sure that we're putting the instruments where they belong the cement where it belongs and that way we avoid any severe uh, neurologic or respiratory complications so there are numerous steps that can be taken to maximize the safety profile of this procedure
1: that's terrific and it really does from What I've seen and heard from patients specifically, you know, they're so amazed at how easy the procedure was. And as with any, you know, as you said, with any surgical or any treatment with, you know, mitigating risk, you should also obviously make sure that you're going to the best provider possible, get, you know, second opinions, make sure that this is something that's right for you and that the risks are something that you're you know, are acceptable to you because, again, of the pain. I have to say, I didn't, I've never had kyphoplasty, but I had a horribly severe herniated disc many years ago. And I was just amazed that when the, again, I had an outpatient procedure much like this. And when I woke up in recovery, really where I was unable to walk and the pain was so horrible. And then I, I finished the procedure and they got me to the you know post-op and they were like, okay, get up. And I was like, there's no way. <laughs> and then I just, I stood up and I walked and I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. Right. And obviously that was just a herniated disc, not a compression fracture, but it was amazing to me that these procedures are available and that can be done to correct something in the spine that is so, unbelievably painful so i have such empathy for people suffering from compression fractures and wondering about you know how to mitigate it and how to solve it and as you said if the bed rest doesn't work and the pt doesn't work and i was past all of those unfortunately for my uh, my herniated disc so it's really wonderful to know more about these procedures that are available to patients and uh, and to let them know that this is these are the questions to ask these are the things to do. Is there anything else, Doctor Ortiz, that you think our listeners should know about compression fractures or about treatment possibilities? Anything that we've left out that you think is really a must? I think we should maybe just talk a little bit about
2: some of the you know the details and nuances of the actual procedure so that they're aware of a little bit about it ahead of time because. That information will help them especially if they're trying to make a decision for themselves or for a yeah. friend or a family member. You just mentioned something important in terms of outpatient procedure. Yes, this procedure can be performed on an outpatient basis. We certainly can perform it on an inpatient basis when it's necessary. Yeah. So, this is an, a major benefit you come into the into the procedure area, the outpatient procedure area in the morning. And usually by the early afternoon, you're being discharged and going home. And you walked in and you walk out. And that's that's impressive for that patients. Is, it is. So after you've been screened and prepared for this procedure, you'll be brought into the operating suite. Uh, we will place the patient on the procedure table on the onto their stomach. We clean the back with a sterilizing solution to help prevent infection. There may be some anesthesia options to be discussed with your doctor ahead of time, and that's arranged beforehand. The procedure, as I said, is performed under imaging guidance so that we're able to see not only the fractured bone, but to be able to guide our instruments properly. And then with the procedure itself, what it entails is carefully advancing a bone needle through a tiny incision in the skin and placing it in the area of the fractured portion of the bone. We then would remove a stylet that's placed inside that needle and replace it with what's called a balloon temp. So there's an actual medical grade balloon that we place inside the fractured bone. We temporarily inflate that balloon. And when we're doing that, we're looking under imaging guidance, and we can actually see the height restoration within that fractured bone. And this is very important because we actually get to change the morphology of the bone and reconstruct the bone. And once we create that space within the bone, we remove, we deflate and remove the balloon. And then we inject carefully under imaging guidance, a medical grade bone cement that is initially doughy or putty-like And then hardens into the area where the fracture is within the bony block and repair the damaged bone. The cement stabilizes the bone. The instruments are then removed, and a small bandage is used to cover the needle insertion site on the skin. There are no stitches, no sutures. Then we will transfer the patient to the recovery room for monitoring and observation, and we would allow the patient to recover for a few hours and evaluate them prior to discharge. Usually I give my patients very thorough discharge instructions to take it easy for a couple of days and gradually resume their activities of daily living. If they have any other pain issues or anything when when they get home, they call us immediately and we respond. This has really rarely occurred. Usually they're, they're calling because they feel sore in an area or they tried, they did a sudden motion and they think they re-injured themselves. We're always happy to see them right away. We then follow up with our patients in our clinic three weeks after to make sure they're doing okay. We look at the operative site on the back of their skin to make sure everything looks good, to make sure they're not feeling pain in the bone that was treated. And we take care of that at that at that consultation. Then we will make sure they're Uh, Results are being communicated to their referring physician, their primary care doctor. We check their osteoporosis workup in terms of bone density tests, in terms of medications they're on, medications they might need, and we make sure that this portion of the care is coordinated. We then see them again at three months to make sure that the osteoporosis is being dealt with, is being medically managed appropriately and that the patients, if they've needed physical therapy, have started that, particularly physical therapy as it pertains to gait and balance training. So we're making sure we take care of the entire patient. It's a holistic approach, and it works very well. And finally, we will see our patients at one year after the procedure to make sure they're doing fine and that they don't have any new fractures and that their osteoporosis is being managed. And using that approach, our patients have done quite well and we've had excellent results.
1: That's fantastic. That's such a great example, too, Dr. Ortiz. That detail that you provided is a great example for patients to have when they're having conversations with the provider about the potential procedure, right? To ask them what is your process, right? To have their the person that they're they're speaking to sort of walk them through what you just did, right? How are you going to handle this from the surgery, the procedure itself, and then the follow-up, right? And that's how you'll you'll be able to tell whether or not it's a right fit for you and the, the provider to be able to say, well, is this person really going to, you know, stay in touch with me, not just fix my fracture, but stay in touch with me and manage this process because it's scary for people, right? And then, knowing that you're going to be checked in on as you've said over you know in the weeks and then the months and then a year to make sure that this is all going well and that the patient is getting a full you know 360 holistic approach to care is so important. I
2: agree. I think that it has to be just more than taking care of, a, of the fracture. That's yeah. important. That's very important, but we really got to take care of the patient and if we do that it will reduce the likelihood
1: of a new fracture in the coming years. Yeah, I think that's, that's such good news. And interestingly, you know, within the bone health field, there's so much new information and opportunities and procedures that are coming to light that I know are under evaluation and are seeking FDA approval. And so many of them are in this space, right? New ways to do this procedure, new ways to be able to Help the bone with what's inserted inside the spine. Like it's really an exciting field, and I think there's going to be a lot coming down the path in the next three to five years that will make a huge difference for patients. Don't you agree?
2: Oh, yes, I certainly agree. There are so many new developments that are under investigation that have been recently approved that provide unique alternatives for specific types of fractures in given locations within the spine. There'll be Better ways of surveilling patients, of analyzing the spine using artificial intelligence. So, the opportunities and the new developments are incredible. Stay (laughs) tuned. More to follow. And certainly, I think that the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation website is a great tool for patients to look at, to use, to help in bringing these new developments. Uh, to their attention,
1: yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm excited, as you said, and, and and definitely we'll be we'll be speaking with you again, Dr. Ortiz, as all of these new things come down the pike and helping patients to evaluate, you know, what's happening and what's available and and what the risks and benefits are, just like we do for this procedure. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Ortiz. We really appreciate your time and your expertise, and uh, we'll have links to those BHOF resources that you mentioned associated with this episode at bonetalk.org. For more information about how to keep your bones strong and healthy for life, please visit our website at bonehealthandosteoporosis.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do two things. One, subscribe to Bone Talk so you never miss an episode. And two, please share these episodes with all of your family and friends. Thank you. And we look forward to having you join us for another episode of Bone Talk. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you for joining Bone Talk,
0: the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved, and or help fuel BHOF's mission with financial support, visit bonehealthandosteoporosis.org.